As um, <clears throat> I'm sure many of you know, that uh, the first uh, the, the the elders of church asked, have asked that the first Sunday of the month I would uh, go off of our normal series, which we have two more sermons on the Revelation that will be done. And they've asked me to engage in what we've called hot topics, and there is probably no hotter topic than the topic we're going to talk about this morning. It also just so happened that it's a month where we're emphasizing this, and uh, those in our church who have kind of spearheaded this ministry have also asked me to talk about this particular topic, and I've used as a kind of a springboard Psalm 82 verses 3 and 4 to get us started. Psalm 82, verses 3 and 4, hear now the word of God. Defend the poor and fatherless, do justice to the afflicted and needy, deliver the poor and needy, free them from the hand of the wicked. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do pray that you would open our eyes and hearts to see the truth of that which is good. Help us to have the discernment to recognize evil when it's within us and around us. Give us also, Father, the wisdom to know how to engage it in such a way that honors you, and yet done so with boldness and without a fear of the environment in which we live. And we do pray, Father, that we would be a wise people, and that as a result of being a wise people, that we would be able to pour that wisdom out to others. With the end game, Father, of knowing and believing in the one who's delivered us from the darkness, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. Well, in June, June 1st, I will have been the pastor of this church for 33 years. And in those 33 years, there's only been one thing other than, I guess, the name of the church that has remained in our bulletin the entire time for these 33 years, and it reads like this. We believe God's moral law to be active still and the basis for all good civic law. To depart from it rebelliously is to invite moral and civil disaster. 1 John 3, 4, whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. We are pro-life and understand abortion to be the taking of an innocent life. Well, January 22nd would have marked the 50th anniversary of Roe versus Wade, that 1973 landmark decision by the Supreme Court that legalized abortion nationwide. I was a senior in high school when that came out and at the, first, at the time didn't recognize kind of what was, what was going on. And of course, we would have been recognizing the 50-year anniversary of that, but June of last year, that was overturned. And I know I think there's, there's cause for praise, and yet really the overturning of Roe v. Wade did not make abortion illegal. It just granted individual states the power to set their own abortion laws. And so there's a limit to how much we would rejoice. And to be honest with you, I don't think the changing of the law is what really would cause me to rejoice. It's really the changing of hearts that would cause us to rejoice. You know, the law has its limitations, Nonetheless, I think we have to recognize that since 1973, we've aborted over 60 million babies in the United States alone. It is, without a doubt, the greatest sin and tragedy of my generation. And I don't think there's a close second. I mean, I think things try. You know, we live in a culture where they're trying to do more evil, but I think that's about as dark as humanity can get. And I think the organization that has been most opportunistic 
regarding Roe v. Wade has been an organization called Planned Parenthood. One of our former staff members, who is now a minister in the South, commented on our nation's past celebrations, because we would celebrate as a nation every anniversary of Roe v. Wade. And he wrote these words, which I thought were very profound. He wrote this, don't get confused about it. Planned Parenthood is a $1.5 billion taxpayer-funded abortion corporation. It is essentially a for-profit state enterprise that performs homicides upon American infants for a modest fee. If you do not like your child and it hasn't been born quite yet, they will kill it, remove it from your body, and dispose of it for you. It is the most neat, cold, clean, heartless, soulless, inhuman, terrifying, bestial bit of murder ever devised by humankind. There has never been anything quite like it, not for a lack of trying through all human history. This is it, the darkest night of our historical soul. And we celebrate it as if it were a sacrament, holding it up to the daylight as if it were evidence of our great commitment to humanity. Well, it shouldn't surprise us that the world would resist a sermon dedicated to the exposing of this practice, this foul, dark practice of abortion. But it might be surprising to some of you in this room that many Christians will grumble at a sermon with such political undercurrents. It's not just a, in a moral issue. It's a political issue. It's, you know, in Capitol Hill, that's where this debate takes place, not just in the church or in living rooms. It is frequently argued that the pulpit, what I'm doing right now, is no place for this discussion. Now, I agree that primarily this pulpit, without a doubt, should herald above all things the gospel of Jesus Christ, his resurrection. If that, if that is absent from this pulpit, you need to find a new pastor. And if it's absent from this church, you need to find a new church. That's got to be first and foremost that is the heart of the ministry. Nonetheless, there are times when there is such a prevailing evil in a culture that it must be addressed. And if the church doesn't address it, who's going to address it? Because everybody will address it, but has God not given us the responsibility to speak his wisdom into the world in which we live? Consider the words of German theologian and Lutheran pastor Martin Niemöller. He had been imprisoned for opposing Hitler, obviously a very political thing for him to do, and he wrote this. In Germany, they came first for the communists, and I didn't speak up because I wasn't a communist. They came for the Jews, and I didn't speak up because I wasn't a Jew. Then they came for the trade unionists, and I didn't speak up because I wasn't a trade unionist. Then they came for the Catholics, and I didn't speak up because I was a Protestant. Then they came for me, and by that time, no one was left to speak up. I'm going to spend a few moments here speaking up. I do pray that I will say what I'm about to say with integrity, sensitivity, rationality, and soundness of thought. I'm not going to ramble. I'm not going to just kind of angrily say things. I want you to walk away with a clear understanding of the issue. I'm going to very kind of rapidly address common arguments in this particular topic, and then you can decide at what level and in what manner you'll speak up. But we all have a responsibility to do something. We all have a responsibility to say something. It's my goal here for you to just kind of have in the bosom of your own heart and mind what is real and what is true. That if God does give you the opportunity, you'll know where to go with it. And then I'm going to end with, is there a path back? 
for us individually, those who have kind of embarked upon this dark act, those who've encouraged it, is there a path back for the nation that has, in fact, countenanced this particular dark act? Now, common arguments. Let's get into, you know, the weeds here a little bit. One of the most common arguments for abortion on demand revolves around when life begins, or more accurately, really, when human life begins. Because everybody knows there's life going on, but human life. I was at dinner with a, uh, I, was at, I was at Catalina Island doing a wedding, and I had dinner with the parents of the groom, and they brought in a med, med school student, and the four of us were at the table eating. And somehow the issue of abortion came up, and he viewed my views as kind of sophomoric. He viewed my pro-life view as kind of, kind of the view of a simpleton. And then he began making very strident appeals to science. I mean, it was a real interesting dinner. And I could tell that he thought there would be a rapid end to the discussion when he started referring to heartbeats and brainwaves as the definitive standard of life. Now, I don't mean to sound like I'm the hero of my own story here. You know, but I remember kind of listening to this guy, and he's kind of like going, like, you know, you, you go to your church and have your prayer meeting, but when it comes to these weighty matters, let the pros take over. Heartbeats, brainwaves. Now, leave for now just a moment that the baby's heartbeat generally begins in 22 days. The brainwaves are detectable in six weeks, so... Generally speaking, before a woman would even know she's pregnant, these things are already happening. But leave that aside for now. I have to say I was surprised at how off guard this guy was caught, this almost doctor friend I had made, when I simply asked him this. I said, why do you think those things qualify as a standard for human life? Heartbeats, brainwaves. What I, what I learned, and I think what we all need to learn, is that, that when we give up epistemology, and that, the epistemology is the theory of knowledge. How do you know the things you know? You're saying brainwaves. It used to be heartbeat. It, you know, they, they keep changing it. So how do, you, how do you know that? We all know things. You know, philosophy can be kind of broken down into three topics, not to get too far into this, metaphysics, ethics, and epistemology. And those three things are this. Metaphysics, what is real? What's the real thing going on? Ethics, what is right? Right? But epistemology is how do we know? How do you know the things that you know? You're, you're, you're saying this is it. This is the definitive standard of human life. Really? Why? And it was almost as if he didn't expect that question. When you give, a, you know, we, we're doing the Westminster Confession class in this church during the Sunday school hour. And there have been people over the course of history who don't like that chapter one is of the scriptures and not of God. That the, you, it starts with the Bible and not God. Because when you give up the means by which you know God, you've given up God. Because man will always invent a God of his own definition unless God has objectively revealed to himself to us in a propositional way that we can actually understand. Well, the list of what constitutes human life goes on, right? So brain waves, heartbeats, why? Why, are the, why is that the standard? Well, you, if you research this at all, you're going to find a lot of other things. Sentience, have you heard this? Se, se, you know, somebody will get up there and, 
you kind of win it right away because people don't know what the word is, and whenever you use a word that other people don't know, you sound smart, right? Sentience, and that's this idea of feeling something. And really, in this particular topic, it's the idea of knowing that you exist. I know that I am. And until I know that I am, I'm not actually a human being. Well, my first question is, how could you possibly know whether or not somebody else knows that they are? How do you measure that? But secondly, with this, going back to the first one, why is that the standard? Why, you're just pulling it out of your hat. You're looking for something to hang your coat on. Another argument is viability or independence. This idea that you, you need to be able to survive on your own. Once you can survive on your own, then your life, your human life, worth protecting. Of course, that doesn't just, you know, address the babies in the womb, it addresses babies when they're out of the womb for kind of a long period of time. Matter of fact, that addresses a lot of people, college students, just kidding. <laughs> but it addresses the elderly, right? It addresses the infirmed. It addresses those who are just incapable, either permanently or even temporarily, of taking care of themselves. It's a nightmarish quality that we're going to throw on the table in order to determine whether or not something should be protected, somebody's life should be protected. And, you know, as, as weird as that sounds, th we're dancing around the idea of whether or not we should allow little babies who are already outside the womb to be terminated. You know, so it's, it's not that far off in terms of what we are capable of doing if left to our own devices. Even many of my pro-life colleagues, and I don't altogether disagree with them, urge the education of the populace regarding the very human qualities which appear at startlingly early stages of fetal development. So they'll kind of go, no, people need to know. As I said a minute ago, 22 days, six weeks, you start seeing things like fingerprints, spinal cords, the development of eyes and so forth. You know, there's impact to that. That's why those who are pro-abortion do not want there to be a visual of what these babies actually look like. They, you want them to be invisible because it's easier to terminate that which is invisible than that which seems personal. But I think that even is, falls short of where we as Christians need to be. There needs to be an authoritative objective criteria. We need to really know why we think things are wrong and why things are right and if we don't, we're left that with that empty slogan that people use to define pornography. Matter of fact, Alan Dershowitz uses it to define immorality, and that is, I can't define it, but I know it when I see it. Well, that's a really foolish methodology to determine these things because it's just a matter of time before our mind is so influenced by the world in which we live that we can look at some pretty awful things and go, I think it's okay. So there's got to be something more definitive, something more authoritative, something more propositional. One of our former presidents, when asked if abortion was the taking of an innocent life, answered this way. He was actually in a church being interviewed by a pastor. And his response was, well, when it gets right down to it, the answer to that question is above my pay grade. And I remember watching that, thinking, you know, you're just escaping. You're escaping that question. And it sounds very humble, but you know what? He became president and he governed as if he knew the answer to that question. 
He might have, been his, with his words, said it's above my pay grade. When it came to signing things, it was very much within his pay grade. So we all have, we all, we're all functioning as if we know something. But the question is, if it's above your pay grade, then you should have kind of recused yourself rather than kind of engage. I know, what, I know the things I'm not good at. I, don't, I, I will never work on the brakes of my own car. I don't, at my house, I'll put up a fence, but I won't work on electricity. And I'll, use, I'll, use, I'll work on the propane tank, but I won't work on the gas because I'm afraid I might blow the house up. We got to know what we don't know. And it's, a, and it's a race, apart from the will of God, the word of God, we don't know anything. Matter of fact, the, the only things we know are how to pursue darkness. And God needs to shine his light upon us and be a lamp unto our feet. All that to say, there are no matters above God's pay grade. And God has revealed, in no uncertain terms, the answers to this question. David, even as we read this morning, referred to himself as a sinner at conception. He was a sinner at conception. Cell clusters are not sinners. You know who are sinners? People. You can't read that make that passage in Psalm 51 makes no sense unless you recognize that David at conception was a person. Luke talking about John the Baptist being in Elizabeth's womb and it's not as obvious in the English but in the Greek the word brephos is used to describe John the Baptist while in his mother's womb. But Luke uses the same word to describe Jesus when he's in the swaddling cloths in the manger. The Bible makes no distinction between the born and the unborn. Matter of fact, in Exodus chapter 21, we see a passage that you can't read without drawing the conclusion that God is going, look, I'm going to protect that unborn baby. It's a record of two men fighting, and they hit a woman who's with child, and there's a punishment for what might happen to that child while still in the mother's womb. So it's not unclear in the Bible. God has revealed to us that from conception, we are human beings. All that, of course, leads, you know, you, you see my appeal here, right? My appeal is to Scripture. Of, you know, and that might be fine for us in this room if we believe the Bible. But, of course, keeping religion out of politics is a sacred mantra among those who support the killing of the unborn. They, they're just like, you keep your religion, you know, out of my womb. Keep your religion out of the halls of justice. You know, do your religion privately, but don't allow it to affect the world in which we live. It's kind of the stepbrother of keep politics out of the pulpit. We have in the church, keep politics out of the pulpit. In the world, we have keep religion out of the halls of justice, the separation of church and state. Now, let me tell you, I believe in the separation of church and state. I don't think there should be a church-run state or a state-run church. I don't think we should have the Church of America over and against the Church of England. But that's, that's way different than saying keeping the church out is way different than keeping God out. And we can go down this road, but there is no way the founders of this nation, with all their praying and all their references to God, somehow thought that the separation of church and state meant the separation of God and state. But that's just a step people take, and nobody wants to kind of challenge it. What do people mean when they protest that you're seeking to impose your religion upon an unwilling people? 
because that's what it is. You know, you've got your religion, keep your religion, but don't try to get other people to yield to your religion. Well, there must be some knowable source for our immaterial convictions that govern the ethos of a society. All right, if not God, who? You have a conviction. I don't care who you're talking to, right? They have a conviction. They have an immaterial conviction. Where is it coming from? Who's calling the shots? Who's your daddy when it comes to making decisions that will affect a culture? Because everybody has one. You're not going to walk into a voting booth and make a decision without having kind of figured out, you know, why do I think things are right? Why do I think things are wrong? And where am I going to go with this? The question isn't, really religion. You can call it something else if you like. You can call it philosophy. You can call it a way of life. You can call it a worldview, whatever it is. The real question is, and whether you're a Christian or not, I want you to ask yourself this question, to whom are we willing to kneel? Who are you kneeling to? It's not, are you going to kneel? Who are you kneeling to? Are you going to kneel to the doctors when they start talking about brainwaves? Are you going to kneel to the lawyers when they start threatening you with a lawsuit? Are you going to kneel to the politicians? Are you going to kneel to the poets? Are you going to kneel to the rock stars? Are you going to kneel to the comedians? Because everybody tends to think that they have all the answers. You know, Plato, you know who he thought should be in charge? The philosophers. He said, you know, in Plato's Republic, he said, you know what? All the philosophers should become the kings. Why? Because we know what's best. Everybody thinks they know what's best. Who gets to be God? It may initially appear convenient to seek to extract the one living triune God who has revealed his will and wisdom in the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments, but now now we're left with the daunting task of picking a new God as the arbiter of human affairs. I'm really interested to know why you think that person or that thing or that entity should be God. What qualifies them? Were they the maker of heavens and the earth? Secularists may not refer to it quite that way, but it's merely semantics. They have their gods. They are intensely religious. And they will persecute you if you don't worship their god. In all of our studies, by the way, of transgressions of the Israelites in the Old Testament, especially when we went through Route 66, one of the conclusions that we would see in repeated fashion is how the worshiping of false gods, and in the notes I've got about six or eight examples here, I won't go through all of them, but the worshiping of false gods inevitably led to, among other things, the sacrifice of children. Because ultimately, if you're serving a false god, whether it's Molech or Baal or Dagon or whoever, that false god is governed by the devil himself. And the devil loves death. And the devil loves to put to death that which is the most innocent. And so right there in the scriptures, we're kind of going, God's going, don't be like them. And even the Israelites were so influenced by their surrounding nations that they began to put their own children to death as well. It's amazing what we will do if we are not grounded in something that is above and beyond the culture in which we live. We need to be a people who understand that which is transcendent. And by that I mean that is above us all. And there's only one thing that we have, and that is God and his word revealed to us that rescues us from the slavery of our own sin and the culture in which we live. If there's something else, I'm anxious to hear it. 
I'm offering my opinion that it would be the greatest blessing for our country that the true God, the triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, be the one who governs the affairs of our church, of our families, and of our nation, and our nations. This is the hope, the only hope. That is the only hope in terms of this issue. There's no doubt in my mind that the healing of our nation, remember in Revelation we were talking about that tree of life and it had its leaves were for the healing of the nations? The only healing of the nation is going to come evangelistically. Now, I do think that we should change laws, but I don't think the answer is a changed law. The answer is a changed heart. Good laws come from hearts that have been changed. You can have good laws, but if you have evil people, that's not going to matter. What you need is good laws that come from a people who've come to recognize the true light and life in Christ. It is the fruit. The good law is the fruit of a redeemed people. It's not the creator of a redeemed people. The creator of a redeemed people is Christ and is Christ alone. And the moment we as a church or the church in general begin to neglect the preaching of the gospel, this will just be one of many things that we'll find ourselves surrounded by in terms of the darkness. And I think we're experiencing that in spades right now. Now, there are a bunch of other objections which go beyond the pale of a single sermon. So I can't get into every last single one. I'm looking at my own notes, and it's almost like there's a, there's a conference here, right? <clears throat> but let me say it this way. If the unborn... So you got all these objections, and you've heard them, and I'm going to go over a few of them, a few more of them right now. But if the unborn baby is not truly a baby, then all of the objections are worth a hearty look. If that unborn baby is not really a baby, then all the objections need to be considered one at a time. But if the unborn baby is in fact a baby, then none of the objections are sufficient to kill it. Financial hardship, that comes up, right? Financial hardship, it's real. It is very possible that a child is going to be born into a less than optimal economic environment. That is a problem. If the unborn is merely an appendix, if the unborn is a fingernail, this would be a valid consideration. You know, if the unborn is cosmetic surgery, I, you know what, we have financial hardship, we, you know, you can't do that cosmetic surgery that you want to do. But you don't terminate the baby because you can't pay your bills. The same can be said for absentee dads. I think it's a sad thing that we live in a country with so many absentee dads. For a man to abandon his responsibilities surrounding his offspring is wrong. It's devastating. It's a sin. But you don't execute a child because of his or her parents' sin. You hear this phrase a lot, reproductive rights. To be sure, the government should be not be micromanaging who we marry or how many kids we should have. I believe, you know, so when, if by reproductive rights we're saying, don't tell me who to marry or how many kids I should have. But once a baby exists, we have now reproduced. And that baby has rights. In a secondary sense, those rights should be protected by the government. The Bible tells governments to protect the innocent. But in a primary sense, those rights, the right to live, is protected by God himself. 
God is saying, I'm going to protect the innocent. And he's, and he's calling out to us going, and you know what? The means by which I protect the innocent is you. And you have a responsibility, as we opened it with this passage, to deliver those who find themselves the victim of this type of bloodshed. Another objection is this apparent inconsistency coming from the pro-life constituency. Now, there's this argument. I was at a youth conference years and years ago, and I got into a debate with this guy named Tony Campolo. Some of you maybe have heard of him. He's still alive, I think. He's in his 80s now. And he's a very liberal, you know, professing Christian. And somehow we got into this discussion at this youth conference. And he was very um, vociferous, a little Italian guy, you know. And I remember we got in a debate, and all of a sudden people were surrounding us because he was pretty loud, and he put his finger right in my chest. And he said, the problem with people like you The problem with people like you is that you're pro-life, but you're also for the death penalty. And I I, I almost didn't know how to respond to that. And then I heard Larry King say the same thing, interviewing somebody. He's like, like, I can't get my arm around. My arms are on the fact that you're pro-life, but you're for the death penalty. Okay, let me just say a couple things here. One is, the fact that I'm wrong in one thing doesn't mean that I'm wrong in the other. We, we are full of inconsistencies, right, as a people. We don't want to be inconsistent. We want to be consistent. But if we have to be correct in everything in order to be correct in anything, then none of us are going to be correct in anything. Right? You can't point out that you're wrong here. Therefore, because you're wrong here, you're wrong in everything. Because if you're going to find one thing that you're wrong at, that disqualifies you from having any opinion at all. Nobody has an opinion. Except God, all right? Maybe that wouldn't be a bad way to conduct business. But as many of you could tell when I mentioned that, because I saw a lot of rolling eyes, if there is an example of anywhere in terms of the fall of man crushing our rationality and bringing us to a level of a debased mind, it's here. Where you're just, when he said that, I almost didn't know how to respond. I was so shocked to hear the objection that, It was hard for me to find the obvious words to respond to such an objection with his little Italian finger in my chest. And so I I said something that I thought, this must be wrong because I must be missing something. And my only answer was, well, yeah, I think we should protect innocent babies and convicted murderers should be put to death. I just, I... But I, you, I keep hearing this, and I'm like, wow, this is, I don't know where to go from here. That's kind of the end of my argument, you know, it's the end of the statement. Another objection is that pro-life people may want to save babies, but are they willing to care for them once they're born? You've heard that, right? Oh, you're all into arguing, but, you know, and you get into this whole accusation that you're really, you know, you're, you're arguing here, but you're neglecting there. And again, we have the same fallacious thinking. The fact that I happen to be negligent in one thing doesn't mean that I shouldn't have a conviction somewhere else. You know, when people are dedicating themselves to cure cancer, you don't accuse them of going, well, you're so dedicated to curing cancer, what about diabetes? Hypocrite. Well, no, we don't function that way. But even having said that, the 
primarily Christian community which lobbies the pro-life direction, if you look at the statistics, and I have, do more to help unwed mothers than any community in America. It's just a false accusation. And here's the thing you need to know. They will lie. People will lie. Now, I'm not saying that the person who's saying it to you is lying, your neighbor, but they've believed a lie, and it's coming from a lie, and it shouldn't shock us that people who are willing to kill babies would lie. Now, one of the most compelling objections revolves around the instances of rape and incest. And I, I don't, you know, I mean, I, I want to be aware of my own body language and stuff, and I don't want to be insensitive to this. I mean, it's an intensely difficult issue. But interestingly enough, just randomly, I, I was watching a pro-life um, rally, and a man got up there, and he was, in fact, a, a child of a woman who had been raped. And he's like, I'm here, I'm alive. My mother loves me, I love my mother. I mean, it was like this horrible thing happened. But again, if it's a human being, you, you don't kill a baby because of the crime of his or her father. Now, I'm not saying this isn't a difficult issue, right? I don't want to kind of approach this as if, hey, just make the right choice. But here's something else to consider. The, the, the answer to that unbelievable, difficult situation, people will think, well, the easy answer is to abort the child. Something horrible happened. Here's the cure. Abort the baby. But I've been involved in this issue long enough and have engaged enough women who later on came to realize something horrible happened to me. Then I was encouraged to, to do something horrible. And they look back on it because there's no easy way out of this, right? There's something horrible has happened, and you're, there's not going to be this idea, hey, let's push this button and it all goes away. So something horrible has happened, but so many women have been like, look, it's something horrible happened to me, and then I was convinced that by the culture in which I lived to do something horrible. Now, for the rest of my life, I don't have one horrible thing. I have two horrible things. So it's, there's no, it's not like it's an easy answer to just go, hey, just do this. Not to mention the fact that the, if the baby is a baby, the baby needs to be protected. And I, like, I, don't want to be, I don't know what I look like right now. I don't know how, you know, I, maybe I look like Tony Compolo pushing my <laughs> finger into your chest or something. But we have to understand here that we're trying for easy answers, and sometimes those easy answers make things way worse than they otherwise would have been. The euphemisms surrounding this issue are calculated and intense. I was at one of the very first meetings back in the 70s when we were made aware of the fact that, you know, the pro-abortion community was going to use a term called pro-choice. You know, that's the word. I mean, we all know pro-choice. I mean, choice is good. And then it was in that meeting where I was first exposed to the language that those who are against abortion we're going to use the term pro-life. So there's these euphemisms out there. But I think you'll notice oftentimes when you're watching the news, the pro-abortion people will almost always be called pro-choice, and very seldom do the anti-abortion people, very seldom are they called pro-life. They're anti-abortion. Now, that might sound silly, but there's language, right, that goes into people's minds, and there are euphemisms, and one of them is this idea of women's health. Reproductive rights, 
women's health. Well, we have to understand this because it's commonly argued that to criminalize abortion would send women into the back alleys, right? To these unsafe procedures and environments where this type of thing will take place. Well, you just need to know this. If you're interested in some facts, number one, if the baby's truly human, then that's where back alleys or where murders take place. But leaving that, not to be, you know, overly kind of incendiary in the language, there have been far, far more women who've died from abortions since Roe versus Wade than before Roe v. Wade when things were illegal. And that's a result of just the sheer numbers of abortions. So it can be done more safely, but because it has been turned into just a form of birth control, the number of people who've had it has resulted in more deaths of women than ever before. So again, it's just a false accusation. Well, the list goes on and on. Some of them, no doubt, tuned me out because men shouldn't have a say on the issue. I mean, I've, I've been in conversations where they just look at me and go, you know, you're a man, shut up. Like, this is not your place. You're, you're not allowed to say this. But I'm friends. I mean, I, if there's anything I'd want to produce in terms of the pastor of a church, it's clear-thinking people, and it is logically absurd to suggest that a person's sex disqualifies them from protecting babies. That would be similar to saying that I have no right to oppose slavery because I'm not black. Add to that that there, are, there is a significantly higher percentage of women who are pro-life than there are men. Everything I'm saying today, I could find a whole bunch of women who will say the exact same thing. And so the idea that I'm disqualified from it because I happen to be a man is just fallacious thinking on the part of the person objecting. That's, that's, a, that's a genetic fallacy, right? It's the fallacy of going where it's coming from is wrong, therefore it's wrong. So even if that were the case, even if there were some logic to it, what you have to do is to examine the statement, not the person making the statement. Again, all these objections might have some merit. All the things we're talking about, financial difficulties and, you know, you name it, women's rights, reproductive rights, and on and on if the baby's not human. But if the baby is human, none of them, none of them qualify. But what if you're on the fence? You know, what if you're kind of going, eh, I'm not really sure what I think about this. Maybe you're not, you know, haven't been convinced. And this is a weaker argument, so I'm going to acknowledge that it's a weaker argument. But if you're on the fence, you might want to err on the side of caution. And again, I'm acknowledging that this is not a great argument, but it's just kind of like if I'm driving down the road and there's a crib in the street and I don't know whether or not there's a baby in the crib, I'm probably either way not going to run into the crib because there might be a baby in the crib. If I'm driving down the road and there's a sleeping bag in the road, I'm not going to run over the sleeping bag because there might be somebody sleeping in the sleeping bag more these days than in the past. So, so you're going, well, I don't really know. And I'm going to say, well, if you don't know, err on the side of caution. The fact that you just might be wrong, and you might just be accidentally, unintentionally taking a human life. 
It is often said that pro-lifers are insensitive because they're butting into a woman who's in the midst of making a difficult decision. Have you heard that? You guys are so insensitive. You're going to the abortion clinic or you're doing this or that, and and a woman is in the midst of a very difficult decision. And I recall listening to a debate between the the head of Planned Parenthood and some pro-life opponents, and the head of Planned Parenthood said just that. She goes, the problem with you people is that you're, you're, you're in the middle of one of the most difficult decisions that a woman is ever going to make. And I'm, I don't doubt that. But the, the, but the person that she was debating asked this question that she didn't have an answer to, and he said, why is it a difficult decision? Is it a difficult decision to get your tooth pulled? Is it a difficult decision to have your fingernails clipped? So he's going, look, at you're, you're the one who said it's a difficult decision. I want to know why it's a difficult decision. And something happened in that debate, and this was a long time ago, that almost shocked me. Because this one panel was making the argument that it was a baby, and they started making their argument, and it was, like I said, it wasn't all biblical. A lot of it was science-based and what have you. And this woman, who was the head of Planned Parenthood, finally scoffed, and she said, don't be silly, we know it's a baby. And I, at that point, I'm like going, wow, we got a whole different game going on here. People say it's not their place to interfere, right? That's an argument. You know, don't interfere. It's a decision between a woman and her doctor. Again, if it's not a human, that might make sense. But if you're walking through a park and saw a woman and her doctor abusing a one-year-old, would you interfere? Would you be held back if the woman and her doctor told you that they didn't think the toddler was a human? We don't consider this toddler a human. We don't think they're a human until they can actually say the words, please leave me alone. Now, you might be saying to yourself right now, Pastor, you're overstating the issue. Toddlers are perfectly safe. We're never going to go after the toddlers. Let me tell you, you, like I said earlier, when you give up epistemology, you've given up the farm. When you've given up, how do we determine whether or not somebody else is a human being? When you've given that up, you've opened the door to darkness. It can happen. It has happened. It's not ridiculous. Consider the words of nuclear physicist Winston C. Duke. This is one of our fine thinkers. He said, a philosophy of reason will define a human being as life which demonstrates self-awareness. There you have the, the sentience, right? Volition and rationality. So he goes on. It's self-awareness, volition, rationality. That's life. Thus, here's my conclusion, it should be recognized that not all men are human. It would seem to be more inhumane to kill an adult chimpanzee than a newborn baby, since the chimpanzee has greater mental awareness. This isn't some uneducated guy sitting in a bar spouting off. These are our thinkers. People are not. Here's the deal. You want to know where this problem comes from? People are not as Edward Carnell, who was a theologian and philosopher, the president of a seminary, who made the statement that people are just a grown-up germ. See, once you kind of do that, I'm sure that in the room where he said, you know what, when it gets right down to it, 
People are just grown-up germs. I'm sure that a lot of people looked at him like, wisdom. Rather than recognizing that each one of us are fearfully and wonderfully made. We, We live in a world where we're telling children they're an accident and then trying to give them some sense of purpose. Let me tell you, you don't have to be a philosopher to recognize that if my existence here is just a matter of an accident and my eternity is just going to be annihilation, since both of those things seem to be meaningless, it's very difficult to find purpose in this parenthesis we call life. If my past has no purpose and my future has no existence, what difference does this world even make? Kids figure that out. They may not be able to articulate it, but they figure it out. And telling them that somehow they're valuable or they're worth something or they matter, when you remove from them, no, there is a God in heaven who has made you fearfully. What a thing to say in terms of God fearfully making us. Boy, would that not be, if we could really digest that, the answer to so many problems? I dare say that the counselor offices would be empty if kids really understood that they are fearfully and wonderfully made. We are to be protected. Do you know the reason there is the death penalty? You know where the death penalty is first mentioned in the Bible? It's Genesis 9, 6, where it says, Whosoever sheddeth man's blood by man shall his blood be shed. Right? So if you kill somebody, you are to be put to death. Why? For in the image of God he made man. The reason it is such a heinous act to kill another person is because the person you're killing is made in the image of God. That's what makes it different than killing an animal. How unlike the words of Oliver Wendell Holmes, another great thinker, right? I see no reason for attributing to man a significance in kind different from that which belongs to a baboon or a grain of sand. I guess one of the things I'm hoping that you'll walk away from in this sermon isn't just being more pro-life. It's kind of being more aware of the way people think. What, what has subdued our thinking? What is controlling our hearts and our thoughts? Because it affects everything. It affects the type of father, mother, parent, you know, sibling, spouse, church member. It affects everything. To understand that we are made in the image of God and God has revealed his will to us in his word changes everything. But this is no small issue, I think, can be extracted from this small list we see in Proverbs 6, where it says, you know, there's, there are six things the Lord hates, seven which are an abomination. It's just kind of a Hebraic way of kind of emphasizing. And right in the middle of that list, the thing that God hates are hands that shed innocent blood. And we're, we're surrounded by it. That we are not to remain motionless, I think, on such issues are found in the words that we opened with this morning. Psalm 82, 3 and 4, defend the poor. Defend the fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted. Do justice to the needy. Deliver the poor. Deliver the needy. Free them from the hand of the wicked. Who's he talking to? He's talking to me. He's talking to you. He's not talking to the air. These aren't just abstract concepts. In theory, be this way. No. If If you have the opportunity to do something and you don't do it, that's the sin of negligence. And I don't know to what extent or, you know, 
how far anybody in this room might go. I was in a meeting with a bunch of pastors recently, and I made it kind of a big deal that I didn't think we should ordain ministers who thought it was okay to elect people who thought it was okay to kill their babies. You know, there's a new term out there called an influencer. You guys know what an influencer is? Yeah. Half of you are going, of course they do, and the other half are like, no, not really. <laughs> Separated by age. And in a certain sense, when we put a pastor in a pulpit, we are putting an influencer in the pulpit. What they do, what they have to say, who they support, that is going to influence the culture. And I'm going, I don't want to be part of a committee that would allow somebody to stand in a pulpit or go on the social media and endorse somebody who thinks it's okay to kill babies. And another pastor in the room looked at me and he said, you know, the thing is, abortion is old hat. It's like, it's passe. You're, 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 you're dealing, you, you want to emphasize, he was telling me, you want to emphasize something that is passe. It's like, it's just not, it's not the issue that you grew up with. It was a younger pastor telling me this. And I was just kind of shocked, kind of shocked at that statement. I found it very discouraging, to be honest with you. Well, the means by which you want to be part of that, you know, is we, have, we have a church that has a ministry, and you can reach out to the people who are in charge of that ministry to go, here, I'd like to do, you know, I, can, I got so many hours a week, or, so many, or you, know, do, you know, whatever it is. But I want to finish here recognizing the delicacy of this topic with some words of redemption, because there is a road back. Heaven forbid that we don't call evil evil, right? Woe to those who call good evil and evil good. Like, you got to say it, right? But also, heaven forbid, anybody walks into this church, and you've either done this, or you've contributed to this, or you've supported this, or, you know, and I, you know, in a room this big, I'm sure that's happened, because of just the sheer numbers. So you might be asking, you know, how do I walk away like Tracy mentioned, Romans 8.1, you know, for there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. How do you walk, walk away uncondemned? How do you walk away going, I don't want to be one of those that God severely hates. That I don't want to be an abomination to God because I have, in fact, contributed to the shedding of blood. What's the road back for me? How do I find redemption? Well, one of the reasons I picked the call to worship today that I picked in Psalm 51 is it's one of the most beautiful expressions of, the, of forgiveness that you'll ever read in the Bible. But as Tracy had mentioned, it was David who was a culprit of both sexual sin and murder. And conf- when confronted, and when Nathan said, it's you, David didn't come up with a list of reasons why it was acceptable for him to do it. What was his response? Well, we read it in Psalm 51. Against you and you alone have I sinned. I acknowledge the guilt of my sin. We see that in um, Psalm 33 as well, or Psalm 32 as well, where God, Jesus, David, is acknowledging the guilt of his sin. And when we acknowledge the guilt of our sin and we call upon Christ for forgiveness, this The forgiveness is there. I think one of the most beautiful expressions in our confession is found in chapter 15, where we read, and here you see 
these 121 divines of Westminster in the 1640s, who I think, you know, first and foremost, they, they were theologians, but they were pastors. And you could feel it in a lot of their language. These guys were ministers. They had a, they had a flock. They had people in their office who were broken, hurt, bleeding, that they ministered to. And they came up with this phrase, which I think is so beautiful and very biblical, by the way, as there is no sin so small, but it deserves damnation, so there is no sin so great that it can bring damnation to those who truly repent. You know, sometimes we feel pretty good about ourselves. We're thinking, I'm a pretty good person, you know, but those people need God. Thanks for inviting me to church. You should invite that guy. He really needs it. So one side of this is, look, there's no sin so small that it doesn't deserve damnation. But then there are other people, you know, I invited somebody just last week, and they're like, ah, you don't want me in your church. The moment I walk in, you know, the lightning's going to strike and stuff, you know. They think they're too evil for church, you know. And I don't know if they really think that, or they just, it's just an excuse not to come. But the idea that you're going to walk into this room of sacred people, with your all cluttered up with your sin. The, the church is designed for sinners. Jesus said, I didn't come for people who are healthy. I came for the sick. And he's talking about sinners. If you don't think you're a sinner, Jesus would say, I got nothing for you. But no matter how dark your sin, I mean, if you read your Bible, it's pretty, but pretty. The, the people of God did some pretty horrible things. But all of that is covered by the blood of Christ for those who truly repent. To go, look at that. I did bad things. I don't intend to do it anymore. You're you're not saved, by the way, by not doing them anymore. You're saved by the grace of God through the blood of Christ. But you can't serve two masters, friends. You can't say, well, when it comes to, you know, these political issues, I'm going to serve, you know, Caesar. When it comes to my quiet time, I'm going to serve God. You're going, to, you're going to love one. What did Jesus say? You're going to love one, and the other one you'll feel okay about. No, no. You're going to love one, you're going to hate the other. Isaiah puts it this way, because I, I want to end with a passage from Scripture, even though I think that con- statement from the confession is so valid. Isaiah 55, 7, Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, and he will have mercy on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do pray that you would heal our land, that you would forgive our land for the great wickedness, both individually and corporately, that we have engaged in in this very dark sin. And may it be, Father, revealed to us in a very instructional way that this is just where the human race will go apart from the grace and the love and the wisdom of God himself. And may we find refuge in the person and work of Christ. May the preaching of the gospel be that which brings the healing of the nations. And we do pray for our church and churches everywhere that that message would continually and clearly go forth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.